good to be back in the pulpit here after being in Casey, Illinois last week as we finished a weekend meeting there. And next Sunday I'll be in Belleville, Indiana. This is meeting season and they all come together, but we'll bear through that. And anyway, I'll be in Belleville, Indiana, out to the west of Indianapolis, held several meetings in that area and look forward to being back with those brethren again. This morning I want us to continue and finish a series that we have been doing on Sunday mornings about how do we know about worldliness? How do we know that certain things that we might label as worldliness is wrong? We've talked about the things we say, we've talked about dancing, social drinking, and modesty, and today we want to talk about the dangers of fornication. How do we know about the dangers of fornication? One of the principles we've talked about each time as we've talked about each one of these sins is how do we determine anything to be right or wrong? And we start with the principle that we must accept there is an objective standard. The Bible, the Word of God, is that objective standard in contrast to a subjective standard. That is, here is an objective standard that doesn't vary from person to person, but this objective standard determines what's right is wrong, what is right and wrong. We must verify what we hear by that objective standard. So some preacher, some elder, some friend, our parents say something is right or they say it's wrong. We must verify it by the standard and then we must accept what is verified as indeed the word of God. So let's talk about how do we know about the dangers of fornication. I want to begin by illustrating to you that fornication is not a new problem. We look around in our society and we think, you know what, There's, uh, fornication is rampant and it's all around us. And we think it's worse now than it has ever been. But it's not a new problem. You don't go far into the Old Testament until you read about the case of Shechem and Dinah. We just covered that recently on Wednesday night in Genesis 34. Go four chapters later and you have the case of Judah and Tamar. So you don't go very far into the Old Testament until you start reading of cases of fornication, incest even, even earlier than this in Genesis chapter 19. About 350 years or more before the time of Christ, Demosthenes said this, we keep mistresses for our pleasure, concubines for our constant attendance, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be our faithful housekeepers. What a commentary on society. In the city of Corinth, there were a thousand prostitutes that served daily at the temple of Aphrodite. That's a lot of prostitutes. Each one of the dots you see on the screen before you represents one, so there's a thousand dots there. Can you imagine going to the temple of Aphrodite and scattered all around the community there, there were a thousand prostitutes. Let's suppose that's overstated by half, and so there's only 500 prostitutes there serving daily. It was thought to be their civil duty, as you may think it's your civil duty to go vote or serve on the jury, you went and served as a prostitute. Can you imagine a man noticing his wife's getting ready? Well, where are you going? Oh, this is my week to serve as a prostitute. Oh, yeah, I forgot. You've got to go. Just like going and serving on jury duty. That was the condition of the city of Corinth. It is reported that 25% of the girls and 30% of the boys have sex by the, time, by the age of 18. 21% of ninth graders have slept with four or more partners. 50% of 17-year-olds have had sex. 80% of the teens have sex by the age of 19. Some of these statistics are going to vary, but they all suggest there's a big problem with fornication. Nearly 3 in 10, that is 27% of 13 to 16-year-olds are sexually active, according to NBC People 
magazine poll. That number is out of date, by the way. Almost half the high school students nationwide, about 62% of the students in the 12th grade have had sexual intercourse. It is indeed a problem. 52% of American women have had sex before turning 18, 75% before they get married. It is indeed a problem. This goes back a number of years. According to the 2002 survey of Kaiser Family Foundation and Seventeen Magazine, more than a quarter of the 15 to 17-year-old girls said they have sexual intercourse, that it is almost always or most of the time part of a casual relationship. It is rampant in our society. But I want to suggest to you that extramarital affairs, and we're going to talk about that in this study, is not uncommon in our society. There are different estimates, and one of the reasons it's hard to get an estimate of what's going on is that is not always reported. And so one of the high estimates is that 60% of the men and 40% of the women have extramarital affairs. A more conservative number is 24% of the men and 14% of the women have had a relationship outside of the marriages. 75% of men and women admit to having fantasies about their co-workers, and half of them carry that out. 60% of that begins in the workplace or on the internet. 90% people use the internet to hide or at least to communicate with reference to their extramarital affairs. So what we've demonstrated is simply the fact it's an old problem. This is not something for 2019 merely, but it's an old problem, but it's a prevalent problem even in our society. So let's start with this. Let's talk about what fornication is. You'd think everybody understands what fornication is, but that's not always the case. So let's define the word that is translated fornication. It comes from a word pornea. You don't have to remember that. But the word pornea is the word that's translated fornication in numerous texts. Like Matthew 19 in verse 9, for example. So what is fornication? Fornication, the word pornea, Thayer says, and Thayer is a lexicographer that defines Greek words. He says it means properly of illicit sexual intercourse in general. It's a broad term. Not broad to encompass anything we want, but it is a broad term in contrast to adultery. What is adultery? Same authority, that is, Thayer says, adultery means to have unlawful intercourse with another's wife. Let's illustrate. Fornication is represented by this larger circle, is a broader term than the term adultery. Adultery is more specific than that. All adultery would be fornication, but not all fornication would be classified as adultery. For example, the word pornea would include things like bestiality. It would include uh, homosexuality. And those kinds of things are involved in fornication, whereas in adultery is a more specific term. Now listen to this carefully. Those terms are used interchangeably. Sometimes the Bible will use the term adultery when it's really talking about the idea of fornication, and sometimes the fornication when it talks about adultery. Let me give you two examples. In Matthew chapter 19 in verse 9, a man should put away his wife for the cause of, the text says, fornication. But that's what we generally think of as adultery right here. But the Bible used the word pornea, fornication. Not the word adultery there, it's the word fornication. But it's talking about adultery. Let me give another example where the term adultery is used where it refers to a fornication. A man that looks upon his wife, upon a woman to lust after her, Matthew chapter 5, 27 and 28 has committed adultery already in his heart, but really the idea of fornication there. So those terms are used interchangeably, not only in those texts, but other texts as well. So we're talking about fornication in our study. How do I know 
about the dangers of fornication. We're going to be talking about both premarital and extramarital relationships in our study. And you'll see that as we go further. Let's talk about a second thing now about fornication. How do we know about the dangers of fornication? Well, we need to know what it is, number one. And secondly, we need to know why it is wrong. Why is it wrong to have a relationship outside of marriage or prior to marriage? Why is that wrong? Well, let's start with this. Let's see that the Bible, that objective standard we started with, beginning in the Old Testament had had, had been saying all along that this relationship is wrong. Let's go to the book of Exodus, chapter 20 and in verse 14. This is in the giving of the Ten Commandments. I just want to demonstrate God's attitude toward adultery, toward fornication. God's attitude toward that early in the Old Testament in giving the law of Moses, God had said this was forbidden. You shall not commit adultery. Simple command. You shall not commit adultery. The seventh of the Ten Commands was you shall not commit adultery. God had forbidden that all along. It was even punishable by death. That if one was caught in the act of adultery, both the adulterer and the adulteress should be stoned to death. Now that was God's view of that. That it was, a, it was a, such a crime that it ought to be punishable by stoning them to death. Now here was Job's view of that. You remember Job 31. This is Job's declaration of innocence where he is declaring, I'm innocent. I haven't done any wrong as my friends are accusing me. And he said, I have not been with another woman. For if that had, he said, if I had done that, that would be a heinous crime worthy of punishment. That's the only time that, that phrase is used to my knowledge. And it's used with reference to adultery or fornication that it's called a heinous crime. So the old view of the Old Testament was it is forbidden, punishable by death, and it was a heinous crime. But it doesn't get any better in the New Testament. In the New Testament, God said it was a sin that would keep us out of heaven. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Now remember, Corinth was where there was a thousand prostitutes serving daily. And by the way, to talk about a Corinthian girl was to talk about a prostitute. It means she was merely from Corinth. She was a prostitute if she was a Corinthian girl. That was the, the, the nature of the people of Corinth. So in that context, that, that cultural context, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, or sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, or revilers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And by the way, verse 11, and such were some of you. Some of them had been converted out of that. So notice four things he mentions, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, and sodomites will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's another passage, Galatians chapter 5. This is one of those catalogs of sin. In Galatians chapter 5, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Here again we go. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness. Drop down to verse 21, those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So here is a catalog of sin. You do these, you're not going to heaven is what the text says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in verse 3 that we're to abstain from sexual immorality. Now I'm going to come back to that text a little bit later and look at the context of that in just a moment. So this is a sin that keeps us out of heaven. Now what I want you to notice is Hebrews chapter 13 and in verse 4. If you don't get any other text at this juncture, get this one. 
And that is, here is what is forbidden by God, not the sexual relationship. Fornication in the Old Testament was pictured as heinous, punishable by death. In the New Testament, if you do that, you can't go to heaven. The sin is either if that is before or outside the realm of marriage. Let's go to Hebrews 13 and verse 4. Marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. He's talking about the intimate relationship which is involved in fornication and adultery, if that relationship, though, takes place within marriage, it is honorable and it's pure and it's undefiled. But notice what the text says. Are you reading with me? Verse 4, Hebrews 13 and verse 4, the text says, but the fornicators, that is, if that takes place before marriage, and the adulterers outside the realm of marriage, God will judge. In other words, God will condemn. What God approves of is if that relationship takes place right here in that marriage relationship, but if it takes place either before or outside that relationship, God condemns that. Now that's God's view of that. What, what's wrong with it? What, what's wrong with the sin of fornication? It's because the relationship is either before or outside the realm of marriage. Now let's talk about this principle. Let's talk about the value of reminders that fornication is a sin. Perhaps you've heard me say before, when I first started preaching, I thought, why do I preach to a crowd like this and tell them fornication is a sin? Because they know that. They understand that. There's not a person present who's thinking for the first time, I didn't know that was wrong. I had no clue the Bible taught that. So why do you preach to a crowd like this and tell them fornication is a sin? Well, the reason you do that is simply for this. It may help someone avoid the sin. That when we're reminded of what Joseph was reminded of, we'll come back to Genesis 39 later. Remember he said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? If we have reminders before us constantly, this is wickedness, this is a sin against God, it may prevent someone from yielding to the temptation. A number of years ago, there was a survey made among the colleges across the nation, universities across the nation, about the percentage of those who committed the sin of fornication and all across the universities, whether it be like at Vanderbilt or Harvard and Yale and various schools, the number was considerably high. So there were some brethren, and I put that in quotations, who decided we want to make that similar survey among schools that are operated among churches of Christ. There were, some of them were among the institutional groups. So all of these colleges across the land where they were supposed to be sort of, again, quotation, faith-based, they found the number of those who committed the sin of fornication was considerably down from the national average. And so the question was, why? And so they pursued that in a survey. And the, the answers were varied. Some said it's because they were afraid of venereal disease. Others, they were afraid of pregnancy. Others said they were uh, their parents had really instilled this in him. And others said Bible class teachers had driven it home. And others said the peer pressure was not as great here as it is in other schools. Number one answer. Number one answer was pulpit preaching and teaching on the subject. And so there's value in reminding us of something we already know. We, we know it's a sin. But if we keep driving that principle home, and maybe 10 years from now, someone who may not even be old enough to grasp all we're hearing about today, but they remember something about Joseph, or they remember something about fleeing fornication, and they're prevented from committing the sin? Our time is well spent this morning. Let's go further. Let's talk about where it leads. We're talking about the dangers of fornication. How do I know? 
I know it because what the scriptures reveal. And so let's talk about where it leads. What are some of the consequences that come as a result of this? Well, let's start with this. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Apparently there were some at Corinth who had come out of that environment that were still tainted with the spirit that prevailed in their culture. And so he writes to them saying, and he seems to be dealing with an argument. Some were saying, well, just like the, the body is to be satisfied. If your body's hungry, you satisfy it with meat. Then we ought to satisfy it with our desires and uh, satisfy our desires and commit the sin of fornication. Why not? Body for meat, meat for the body, etc. And notice what he says beginning at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. All things are lawful to me, but all things are not helpful. In other words, even if it was, was lawful, it's not expedient to commit this sin. I want to get ahead, but come back to 1 Corinthians 6 perhaps a little bit later. But at verse 18, flee sexual immorality. The King James will say, flee fornication, run from it. Every sin a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. What's his point? You are perverting the use of the body. In other words, God is the creator of the body. God made your body. He made it for a purpose to be fulfilled, and you're perverting the use of the body when you commit the sin of fornication. That's one of the things it leads to. Here's something else. It destroys one's reputation and their respect for themselves. They may think by yielding to this they build their self-esteem and they feel better. But they end up destroying their self-respect. Let's take a case in point. Let's go to the book of Job, chapter 31. Back to Job 31. You remember what Job had said in that declaration of his innocence? I, I didn't do what you're accusing me of doing. I've not done anything like that. In fact, I've not committed the sin of fornication. That would be great wickedness, or he said that would be a heinous crime worthy of judgment. Now verse 12, for that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. What Job is saying is if I had, had, had committed the sin of fornication, that's like playing with fire. And it would destroy me, he said. Let's go to the book of Proverbs. Go to Proverbs 6. As you're turning to the book of Proverbs, you might put a marker or a finger at Proverbs because what we're going to be doing is turning to Proverbs chapters 5, Proverbs chapter 5, Proverbs chapter 6, Proverbs chapter 7, time and again. Those three chapters go together as a unit dealing with the sin of adultery, warning against the harlot. Repeatedly through those three chapters, no greater warning about the harlot could be found than in Proverbs chapters 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. So let's go to Proverbs chapter 6 in that context. What happens when you yield? Look at verse 27. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Just like you, you would be, you'd be a fool to think I can pick up a fire and bring it up to my clothes and then I'm worried, how, how in the world did my clothes get burned? You can't play with the sin of fornication and there not be consequence that goes with that. Let's go further. Look at verse 33. Wounds and dishonor will he get. That comes as a result of yielding to the harlot. Listen to a couple of young ladies. Here is one who said that having premarital sex was the most horrifying experience of my life. It wasn't at all the emotionally satisfying experience the world had deceived me into believing. I felt as if my insides were being exposed and my heart was left unattended. I know that God has forgiven me of this haunting sin, but also know that I can never have my virginity back. I dread the day that I have to tell the man that I truly love and wish to marry that he is not the only one, though I wish he were. I have stained my life, a stain that will never come out. Can one be forgiven? Certainly so. But here's the point. The point is there is a stain that goes with that. 
Here's another young lady who says, if I could have read Josh McDowell's article, Helping Teens Say No to Sex, when I was a teenager, perhaps I would not have given in so many times back then. But even after I became a Christian and know that God forbade premarital sex, the old habit was hard to break. Now that I'm a wife and a mother and I'm still haunted by my past, it hurts to realize that the most precious gift that I could have ever given my husband on our wedding day was a pure wife was not possible. Do you remember what David said about his own sin with Bathsheba? Was David forgiven? He certainly was. By the way, Psalm 51, cited here, is in a context of embracing forgiveness. That he's embracing. God has forgiven me. But he still said, my sin is ever before me. There's a stain that never goes away. It destroys your reputation and your respect for yourself. Let's go back to Proverbs 5. I said we'd look at these three chapters. It mistreats others. How does it mistreat others? Well, let's look at Proverbs 5 and verse 9. Lest you give honor to others and your years to the cruel one. This is the context of the harlot. You go and, 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 and spend time with the harlot. You're giving your years to a cruel one. She's cruel. So how is she cruel? I thought she treated him nice. Because she's destroying him. She's destroying his soul. She's destroying his character. She's destroying his reputation and his body. It is cruel to others. You're bringing sin upon them. Go to Proverbs 6. It creates jealousy. Particularly the matter of extramarital affairs. Look at verse 34. For a husband's, for jealousy is a husband's fury. And therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, or you give him any gifts. There's no way to calm him down. And so he catches someone with his wife. There's no... Well, here, take a gift, and, and maybe this will make you happy. There is nothing that's going to appease him. It creates jealousy. What else does it do? It destroys a marriage. It's the only reason that God, justifiable reason God gives for ending a marriage relationship is when the mate has committed the sin of fornication. It destroys a marriage. Here's what else it does. It hinders your worship. 1 Peter chapter 5, 3 and in verse 7 talks about a husband is to dwell with his wife according to understanding, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, that your prayers be not hindered. Now what's interesting is that if he doesn't honor her as he should, he doesn't treat her as the weaker vessel, his prayers are hindered. His worship is hindered before God. That didn't even mention fornication. That mentioned something far less than that. So if that's true concerning those sins, certainly the sin of fornication hinders their worship. You can't commit that sin and then come and worship God acceptably. Here's something else it does. It stirs the wrath of God. Look at Colossians chapter 3, if you will. Colossians chapter 3 and in verse, verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes saying, verse, verse 5 mentions, put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness. In other words, stop it, end it, crucify it. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. It stirs the wrath of God. It brings disfellowship. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5? The church was to withdraw from this brother because he was guilty of the sin of fornication and would not repent. He later did, but at this point he wasn't. So it brings disfellowship. Go to 2 Samuel 11. It breeds other sins. How so? We remember the case of David and Bathsheba. Go to 2 Samuel 11. We'll come back to this a little bit later. David, you remember, committed the sin with Bathsheba, and that, did, that, that wasn't the end of the sin. She then comes up and tells him, you know what, I'm with child. 
got pregnant. So now then, he devises a plan to get rid of her husband. First tries to get him to take the credit for the child. And so he uses deception. It leads to deception. That's what I want you to see. It ultimately led to murder in this case. But even in that case, he's trying to deceive and cover his sin. Don't be surprised when someone commits the sin of fornication that you don't catch them in other sins like lying and deceiving and covering up their problem. Sometimes we're shocked when someone has committed the sin of fornication. They lied to me. Well, sure they did. <laughs> sure they did because it breeds other sins. That's the very nature of the sin. And let's turn to Revelation 21 in verse 8. Ultimately, it sends one soul to hell. Notice in Revelation 21 and in verse 8. After this great description of heaven, but, here's a contrast, cowardly and unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the sexually immoral, that's fornicators, sorcerers, and idolaters and all liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. So we need to understand the consequence that goes, here's where it leads. It destroys our body, destroys our reputation, it mistreats others, it creates jealousy, destroys the marriage, destroys your worship, stirs the wrath of God, destroys your fellowship, breeds other sin, and ultimately destroys your soul. This is what Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 are about, and that is what causes it. And that question is, how could one who knows what the scriptures teach? Remember a moment ago I said, this crowd... And any crowd similar to this knows fornication is wrong. But how could they ever get involved in sin like fornication? How could it ever happen to you? Could it happen to you? Could it happen to me? Could it happen to any one of us? What causes us to do that sin when we know it to be wrong? Let's start with Proverbs chapter 2. Turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Proverbs. And if you don't get any other text at this juncture, get Proverbs 2.17 and get it fixed in your mind, particularly if you're a married person. Get Proverbs 2 and in verse 17. Here's how it happens. We forget the covenant with our God and with our mate. What is Proverbs 2 about? It talks about a harlot. This harlot was supposed to be, though, in a relationship with God. She has a covenant with God. She's supposed to be a married woman. Now, we would not be surprised her being involved in harlotry if she doesn't have a relationship with God. She's a total heathen. And if she was not a married woman. It's a well, that's not a big surprise. She's a heathen and she's not married. But she's a married woman, number one. And number two, she has a relationship with God. How could she do this? Are you reading with me? Look at Proverbs 2 and in verse 17. Who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. How on earth did she ever reach the point that she committed the sin of adultery? Here's number one. She forgot the covenant with her God. What does that mean? Her faith grew weaker. Her faith deteriorated. Secondly, she forgets the covenant with her companion. Are you reading with me verse 17? She forsakes the companion of her youth. The marriage deteriorates. So what is this proverb telling me? Here's how this woman that was supposed to be a married woman, who's supposed to be in a relationship with God, finally resulted in becoming a harlot. How did she do that? She forgot the covenant with her God. Her faith got weaker and her marriage deteriorated. Now I know that for two reasons. That every time someone who is a married person who's supposed to be a Christian commits adultery, there are two things that have happened. 
Their faith got weaker and their marriage deteriorated and that's what caused the problem of adultery. And you say, how do you know? I know that, number one, because that's what that text just told me. But let's forget about the text now. And I know it for another reason. I know it because you could not say concerning someone who commits the sin of adultery, I tell you what, at least their faith stayed strong and their marriage stayed strong. Does that make any sense to you? I'm just so glad their faith wasn't shaken. Now they're committing adultery and their marriage stayed strong and it never wavered. They had the strongest point of their marriage when they committed adultery and their faith was at its peak. That's absurd. Something had to happen to the faith. Something had to happen to their marriage. Here's the warning. Listen to this carefully. Very easily our, our faith could begin to wane and we don't realize it's waning. It's getting weaker. Maybe we let up on our study. Maybe we quit reading and we quit studying. Maybe we get wrapped up in a busy life. In such a busy rat race of life, we're not studying like we know. We're going to study more next week and better next week and we never get around. And our faith starts deteriorating. We start neglecting things with our faith and our faith starts deteriorating. And we don't realize it's going downward. Because we're so busy in life, our marriage starts deteriorating. We're not communicating like we used to. We're not spending time together like we used to. And we're drawing further apart and we didn't realize how far apart we were getting. And we become vulnerable for the sin of adultery. The stage is right. And so when someone has an affair and they said, I don't know how it happened. I don't know how. I don't know. Almost every time when I cite Proverbs 2, they say, no, that, that's not it. No, that, that, that doesn't describe us. No, my, my faith wasn't getting weaker. My marriage didn't deteriorate. Within three months, they usually come back to me and say, you know what, you're right. My faith was getting weaker and our marriage did deteriorate. If your faith is getting weaker and your marriage is coming apart, you better be watching and be protecting yourself because you're vulnerable for the sin of adultery. You say, how do you know? Because I read Proverbs 2. Proverbs 2 and in verse 17. Here's something else. What causes it? When we become careless. Let's go to D David. David was very careless in 2 Samuel 11, wasn't he? Go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 with Bathsheba. What, didn't he get very careless? With his thoughts, with his eyes. Look, look at verse 2. 2 Samuel 11 verse 2. That happened about that evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of his house. And from the roof of his house he saw a woman bathing. Well, no problem so far that he saw this woman bathing. He could have turned away and said, I don't need to see that. I don't need to look at it. I don't need, I don't need to have it. No, I don't need to look. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. That led to lust. He's now looking. And he's pondering and continuing. He's very careless in continuing to look. He got even more careless. Look at verse 3. He sent and inquired about the woman. Want to know who she is? Brought her up to his room. And notice at verse 4, he lay with her. He never committed that sin until first of all he was careless in where he was looking and what he was doing in his inquiry. Let's go again. Proverbs 5. Go back. Remember those three chapters, that unit of chapters? Proverbs 5 and verse 8. Remove your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. You want to stay away from the harlot? Don't get near her. She's going to try to seduce you. Someone who is a temptation to you. Don't get near them. Do not go near the door of her house. Remove yourself far from her. Don't be careless. 
I just cite Proverbs 7, and I'm not going to take the time to read it in interest of time, but Proverbs 7, beginning at verse 6 through verse 23, describes a man who is a young man, by the way, who is uh, foolish and unlearned, lacking wisdom, and he foolishly walks down the path where this harlot is, and he succumbs to her. She overpowers him with her wooing ability because he is careless. How does it happen? Go back to Proverbs 6. When we start heeding the looks of the eyes, you remember, as you're turning to Proverbs, let me remind you of Joseph. Uh, remember uh, Potiphar's wife cast longing eyes at Joseph. Started making eyes at Joseph. Look at verse 24. To keep you from the evil woman and from the flattering tongue of the seductress, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. She can say more with her eyes than she can with her tongue. She can cast her eyes and say more than a thousand words could say. Just that look of the eye says, here's what I'm willing to do. Here's how far I'm willing to go. And she casts those longing eyes. Be watchful for that. That's designed to break you down, according to Proverbs 6. Here's something else. How does it happen? We start listening to the flatter. To keep you from the evil woman and from the flattering tongue of the seductress. She tells him how, how great he is and how wonderful his wife must be to how, how blessed she is to have a man like him. And he begins to think he is really something. Or maybe it's he praising her. Look at chapter 7 and verse 15. She lies. Remember, don't forget this, remember who she is, she's a harlot. Verse 15, she comes out to the young man and she says, I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face and I found you. You're the only one for me. You're the only one for me. She's lying through her teeth because she's a harlot. She would have taken any man that came along. And when that young man says, you're the only one I would ever do this with, you're the only one. I only care about you. He's lying through his teeth. Don't ever forget that. Look at chapter 7 in verse 21. With her enticing speech, she causes him to yield, and with her flattering lips, she seduces him. She's stroking his ego and breaking him down till he becomes nothing but distrust. How does it happen? Faith gets weaker. Our marriage deteriorates. We become careless. We start paying attention to the looks of the eyes, and then we listen to the flatter and to the lies. And furthermore, it's encouraged by society. What do we mean by that? Well, society all around us, just like at Corinth, maybe not as bad as Corinth, but our society says there's nothing wrong with premarital relationship. In fact, people boldly talk about that, that we're going to get married, but we've been living together for a while, but we're going to get married one day, and we've got three children out of way, but no big deal. Nobody's ashamed of that anymore. And I won't read this entire quotation. But this suggests to us from Institute for, let me find the reference. This is taken from the NCBI, uh, the, the National Center for Bio, Biotechnology Information. And I won't read all of that, but simply the, their research shows that the analysis of broadcast media suggests that on average teenage viewers see 143 incidents of sexual behavior on network television at prime time each week. Sometimes it's just little inferences. Sometimes it, it may be not as subtle as it was at other times. 
But on network and cable television, we're constantly bombarded with inferences of premarital and extramarital relationships. One study shows that when there are some, I don't, I'm not talking about porn, but I'm talking about sex scenes on television, that something like 70 to 80 to 90% of those are always outside the realm of marriage, almost always. Very seldom is it in a married relationship. So what's the message of that? Well, the message is that everything's okay. Not only in the television, but some of the songs, for example. 42% of the songs back a number of years ago in 1999 contained sexual com, uh, content. Uh, on average, music videos had to contain 93 sexual situations per hour, some of them even hardcore. One study showed that girls who watched more than 14 hours of rap music videos per week were more likely to have multiple sex partners and to be diagnosed with sexually transmitted disease. What's the point? The point is it's encouraged by society. Books, magazines, movies, music say, hey, there's nothing wrong with this. Let's go again. Proverbs chapter 7 and in verse 19. We look then for opportunity. Or maybe a better way of presenting or saying that is we're presented with the opportunity. One may be looking, but the other may just be presented with it. How so? Well, here's this young man. He's not necessarily looking for the opportunity. The harlot was. He's just walking down the street, kind of not knowing what's going on, kind of oblivious and careless. And he comes in contact with his harlot, and she says that uh, I've come out looking for you. Now, let's go down to verse 22, if you will, verse 19. She says, my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey and taken a bag of money with him. He'll come on at a point of day. We won't get caught. Everything's okay. Hey, no, we won't get caught. My husband left. He's coming back, but he said he'd be home in two weeks. He won't catch us. How do you know he left it in, in for that long? Well, he took a bag of money with him. He, made, he packed his bags and took all of his plans with him. He's, he's going to be gone a while. Here's the opportunity. No one will ever catch us. We'll never get caught. How does it happen? I want to suggest to you that it happens when we forget our covenant with God and we become careless and we heed the looks of the eyes and we start listening to the flatter. And then when the opportunity is presented then we are right for destruction. Here's something else. Let's talk about what prevents it. How do I know about the dangers of fornication? Well, one of the things I need to know is how do we prevent that? And how can I make sure that it's never going to happen to me? What do you do to prevent that? Well, first, before we even look at anything on the screen, if we go back to Proverbs chapter 2, I'm going to make sure my faith is strong. So work at building your faith. You say, well, my faith is not the problem. I, I, I don't want to succumb to the sin of fornication. Remember, you do that because your faith is weak. And work on building your marriage and making it strong. And that works a long way toward dealing with the problem. Now, let's talk about some passages that deal with fleeing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verse 18. Flee fornication, the text says, or flee sexual immorality. In other words, run from it. Don't get as close to it as you can and say, I want to I see how close I can get without committing the sin. You run as far from it as you can. There's another passage. Ephesians chapter 5, if you will. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about the number of sins in that same context. Remember he mentioned at, uh, at verse 3 that fornication... And all uncleanness and covetousness not, not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. It doesn't even need to be named among those who are God's people. They need to flee from that. 
One more passage I want to mention, we'll come back to this a little bit later, and that's 1 Thessalonians 4 and in verse 3, that we're to flee sexual immorality again. So the Bible says flee. How do you do that? Let's go to Genesis 39. No greater case can be found of fleeing from fornication than the case of Joseph. Let's talk about Joseph in Genesis 39, and we'll add some principles to what we find in Genesis chapter 39. Here's the first thing we do. So I want to make sure that I, I flee the sin. I want to make sure I don't succumb to that. Look at Genesis 39 and in verse 8. When Joseph, or when Potiphar's wife came to him and said, come lie with me. She cast longing eyes at him. She said, come lie with me. Look at verse 8. But he, here's the word, refused. What does that mean? He said, no. And he meant no. I'm not doing that. I'm not that kind of man. I don't live that kind of life. I think that's wrong. I'm not going to do it. He refused, the text says. But now drop down to verse 8. And so it was that as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her. So how do you flee the sin of fornication? Well, number one, you just say no and you mean no. Here's number two. Remember that somebody trusts you. That's what Joseph said. Look at verse 8. He refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house and has committed all that he has into my hand. In other words, my master trusts me. He's given me everything he owns and lets me handle it. And that lets me deal with it. He lets me handle everything he has. And he trusts me. He trusts me to treat you right. And I'm not going to betray that trust. Remember this. Your parents, young folks, trust you when you're out on a date. They trust you to behave yourself. They trust you. Husbands, remember your wives trust you when they're not there. Wives, remember your husbands trust you to behave yourself when he's not there. Someone trusts you. Someone has confidence you're going to do the right thing. Don't betray the trust. Remember this. Look at verse 9. Remember what it is. It is a sin. Joseph said this. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He said, this is immoral. It's wickedness evil. But not only that is it a sin against God, he said. I want to suggest to you that when the sin of adultery is committed, the sin of premarital sex is committed, it's not just that we have a child out of wedlock, it's not just that we've broken up a marriage. That's not the worst part of it. The worst part of it is a sin against God. That's what Joseph said. It's a sin against God. Remember, it's a sin against God. Here's something else you do. You might want to run, and that may involve literally doing that. I want you to notice two things. Look back at verse 10. Verse 10 says, And so it was that as, Joseph, uh, as, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her, now you might underline, or to be with her. Did you catch that phrase? Not only did he say no to her, he pulled himself away from her because he didn't want to be around her. Because he knew, realized, you know what? You hang around, that, that temptation is going to become stronger. I'm not going to go by and just see how she's doing. I'm not going to go into the room where she is just to say hi and see if she's going to flirt with me again. Look at verse 10. You might underline at the end of verse 10, or to be with her. Might check your translations on that. He stayed out of her way as much as possible, one translation says. He stayed clear of her. You know what he's doing? He's doing exactly what Proverbs 5 and verse 8 said. We quoted that a moment ago. Do not go near the door of her house. Remove your way far from her. That's exactly what he's doing. But now go to verse 12. Look at verse 12. Genesis 39, verse 12. 
And when it came to pass, let's back up to verse 11, get the circumstance. That as Joseph went into the house to do his work, that none of the men of the house was inside, she caught him by the garment and she said, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he ran outside. Literally he did that. He took off running to get away from the circumstance. That may mean, listen to me carefully, we can laugh if we want to, but it may mean literally you get out of the car and you run. You get out of the apartment and you run. You get out of the house and you run and you call for somebody to come and get you. You say, that'd be embarrassing. Not near as embarrassing as saying, you know what, I have a child out of wedlock. Not near as embarrassing as saying, I have committed the sin of fornication and I need to correct that. That's far more embarrassing. It may involve running, literally, from the circumstance. Joseph did. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Watch your behavior around the opposite sex. Watch who you spend time with. Look at verse 11. And it happened about the time that Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside. That's when she really came on strong. Watch your behavior around the opposite sex. Watch how much time you spend in a parked car with the opposite sex. Watch how much time you spend in a room alone with no one else around but just the two of you. Watch how much time you spend with the opposite sex alone when no one else is around. That's when the temptation becomes stronger. Here's something else. Get married. You say, that's not the answer. Wasn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7? Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every wife have her own husband. Get married. Because that's where the relationship is scriptural and certainly approved by God. Keep your thoughts pure. Go back to Proverbs 6. Don't fantasize. Remember one of the quotations we had earlier, statistics? How many people fantasize about their coworkers? Start fantasizing, perhaps, when your marriage is deteriorating and you're dissatisfied with your own relationship. Your faith is getting weaker, so you don't worry about the fantasizing, and then we begin to act upon those fantasies. Look at verse 25, Proverbs 6 and verse 25. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart. Don't look at her and think. Don't look at him and think. Don't do that. Keep your thoughts pure. We need to stop the sin before, stop the fornication before it ever happens. When, when we reach the point, talk, we're still talking, we're developing the idea of keeping your thoughts pure. And when we reach the point that, that we're almost ready to commit the sin, it's too late. We may have reached the point of no return. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want you to notice three things in this text. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. In other words, stop the sin of fornication. Don't commit that sin. Abstain from it. Have nothing to do with it. Say no. This text doesn't stop there. What do I do in order, Paul? What do I do to stop this sin? Do I, do I get nearly to that point, and then when we're almost committing that sin, I say, oh, no, I can't do that. No, 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 no. You back up a little bit. You back up a little that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. That is, you control your body. Now, there is, a there is a controversy among commentators. Let me deal with that just briefly. Some think this, 
that your own possession, possessing your own vessel, is talking about your own body. I think that probably is. Others think he's talking about your wife being your, your own vessel. In either case, he's talking about controlling your body and don't use that towards someone else other than your mate. The point's still the same. You still control your body. So Paul, how do I avoid this sin here? Well, you back up a little bit before you get that, that far and you control your body. How can I control my body, Paul? Look at verse 5. Not in passion of lust. You stop and control your thoughts. You control your thinking process, which leads to controlling your body, which prevents the sin of fornication. And so you don't wait till you get to this point and say, well, the temptation is really, really strong. I don't think I can, I can stop. You back up and control your body. But here's how you control that. You control your thinking process. Go back to Proverbs 6. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart. And one last thing, and that is be what you ought to be in the marriage relationship. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about the intimate relationship in the marriage and that the husband is to yield that unto his wife, the wife is to yield that to her husband. And being what we ought to be in the marriage relationship may help prevent the sin of adultery and the sin of fornication. Well, what have we seen? How do we know about the dangers of fornication? We just turn to our Bible and we look at the Old Testament, we look at the New Testament, and we understand what it is, why it's wrong, and where it leads, what causes it, and then what we can do to prevent that. And may God help us take those principles to heart. And maybe, just maybe, there is someone that maybe even too young to commit the sin now can remember some of these principles down the line. And if they in their mind say, no, our time has been well spent. There may be one more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Do you believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come all together we stand and sing?